A winged victory for the Sullen is the name of ambient, post-rock and modern classical duo Dustin O'Halloran and Adam Wiltsey. In this Ninja Tune podcast, Adam sits down at Rough Trade East with music journalist and broadcasting legend Marianne Hobbs. They discuss everything from winning Wimbledon, the influence of John Peel to playing the BBC proms with Niels Fromm. An extra special Q&A also features an inquisitive Marina Abramovich in the audience. A winged victory for the Sullen have previously released on Erased Tapes and Cranky. Their new record, The Undivided Five, is out now on NinjaTune. If you enjoy this episode, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Good evening. Thank you so much for coming to be with us tonight. Um, this is my friend Adam Wiltsey from A Winged Victory for the Solemn. Adam, it's so nice to see you. Hi, Marianne. We thought we'd just have a bit of fun up here tonight, actually. And I wanted to talk to Adam to begin with about his childhood, because I suddenly realised this is a man that I've made a BBC prom with at the Royal Albert Hall in London. <laughs> and I've got absolutely no idea where he actually began and how music came into his life. So that would be my first question to you, Adam, tonight. Uh, so I, my, my musical background starts quite late. So uh, I was born to a pretty average middle-class family in New York City in the late 60s. And uh, my godfather won Wimbledon in 1963. So I really come from a sports background. I wanted to be a professional tennis player when I was growing up. So my f in 1963, Everyone knows what Wimbledon is, right? Yeah. Okay, so Wimbledon back in '63 was an amateur event. You didn't get if you won the event, you didn't get any money. You just got a gift certificate to Harrods. I'm not kidding. You just got the props. I'm 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 I'm, I'm completely serious. So Chuck, my, my McKinley, my godfather, and my father were going to university at the time. And uh, they decided, well, he said, well, there's just no money in tennis, so I guess I'm going to have to be a stockbroker because he studied business. So they moved to New York City and they became stockbrokers like this, because that was the only way to make money. So, yeah, like, this, is, this was my upbringing. It was sports-related. So I wanted to, when I was five years old, I, I started really intensely into tennis until I was probably 13, 14, and I burned out. And uh, around this time... I bought a shortwave radio, um, and I used to listen to, to, as anyone does, you're just exploring the world and seeing what's out there. And I used to catch the BBC, uh, what do you call it? The John Peel. No, yeah, well, John Peel, obviously, but you call the World Service. Yeah. They used to, used to be able to come in and out. And I don't know if it was public service, public stations in America that would show it, but there were some old Peel shows that, that we used to be able to pick up. And it was the first time I remember hearing, so this would have been 83, 84, hearing, um, I remember this one show, and it was the first time I heard Echo and the Bunnymen, Ocean Rain, and then it was followed by 
like Adrian Sherwood on you sound. And and f- as a as a as a young child, it was you know I didn't I was just you know my my head just went you know it was, I just I didn't think you could play those two I didn't even know what the music was but you know this eclectic thing which is now you know part of you know making a playlist making you know a beautiful piece of long form music for an audience to listen to um, yeah it was it was really a monumental moment in my childhood so things changed there and I slowly it took a long time but I got into making music and that's kind of how it started because this is also connected as we're on a music uh, on a cycle of just you know we have a new record out and every time you put out a new record at this point in history most uh, magazines more so than wanting to interview they want you to make a playlist and I find this extremely difficult Ugh, it's painful <laughs> I don't know how you do it Honestly, <laughs> how so? Just that there's an ocean of sound out there, and uh, it's just, just can't I never, possibly I have, make I, I, I always struggle with the first song and the last song. It just gives me night sweats. I, I can't do it. Those are the two most important. Just so for me, you know. for for me, no pressure. You know, <laughs> no, but I, mean, I you know, I'm not I'm not trying to blow smoke up your butt, but I think it's it's really really <laughs> difficult. I mean, for for me, I find making a, an album much easier than making a playlist. Seriously, I mean, I I, I, I find it more stressful for me. Mm. So beyond discovering the notion that two extraordinary records can sit alongside one another on John Peel's show, what happened next for you? Well, so then we, um, yeah, my parents split up and then I moved to Santa Fe, New Mexico with my father. And then, yeah, I went to high school um, and then moved to Austin, Texas to go to university. And this is sort of when I started f- making, you know, this is when Stars of the Lid started. This was sort of in like 93. And also around this time, I'm, I'm going to talk about John Peel again, just because around this time I didn't have my shortwave radio anymore. And I had sort of learned how to run sound. So I used to run sound for bands. And uh, King Coffee from the Butthole Surfers, who was a friend of mine, he, he had a label called the Trans Syndicate. And I used to, to record some of the bands, but uh, at the time King would... I don't know where he was getting them, but he had he was recording Peel shows and would give them to me on cassette because he knew I liked it. And it was like I guess this would have been '94. The first Stars of Lid record, uh, music for nitrous oxide, came out, and he gave me a cassette, and I still have it of John Peel playing the the Stars of Lid record and talking about it. And it was really it was just an incredible moment. In my, I mean, it's probably for me the, the the most happy moment I've ever had in music. <laughs> just think, wow, John Peel is playing my record. It just blew me away. I couldn't believe it. So he, uh, yeah. So again, it, it, a lot of a lot of my sort of musical upbringing comes back to England. So and that happened, and then pff, here I am. Hmm. <laughs> Bingo. <laughs> It is really interesting with John Peel. I worked with him for 10 years at Radio 1, and I guess what he taught me was that there's an entire rainforest of sound out there, and I guess the point of discovering music isn't that you're always gonna love everything that you hear, but the notion that it's out there, the notion that this kind of music is actually being made is just as valuable, really. And I think what's what's kind of really interesting about Peel's show is that you never listen to it expecting to love every song. In fact, you knew that you'd probably find a lot of it really jarring and difficult. But a couple of weeks later, those were the tracks that would be your favourites, I think, probably, wouldn't they? Yeah, but I mean, I think the 
it taught me a little bit of a patience to listen to things you wouldn't think you normally would like because I, I never liked reggae. I, I, I thought I didn't, but I started, to, I think I d developed a, uh, an ability to, to, to enjoy reggae through John Peel. Mm. You know, just because it would just be on and you couldn't, this was back in the day where you couldn't, you couldn't fast forward it. Just you're you're listening to the radio. This is this is what you must do. So it's uh, yeah, it's definitely it was a school. It was it was a it was a university of of learning how to listen to things. I think for me. Yeah. I want to talk to you a bit about greatest moments in life. Mm. Um, as you've mentioned that Peel's play was one of them. I think a lot of artists would say the same thing. You know, to get that kind of validation from a DJ like John Peel um, in any one of the decades that he was broadcasting on Radio 1. I mean, that was the moment at which you'd really, truly arrived, probably, wasn't it? I uh, suppose. Yeah, I suppose. You know, I, I mean, definitely because I, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd listened to him for many years before that. but and, and also just developed a sort of musical taste through some of the things... You know, I mean, Adrian Sherwood, the Anya Sound was also another one that just, you know, something he played that I'd never heard before, and then I really got into it, and just, you know, it was just like this weird world opened up, and just, oh my God, what is this, you know? <laughs> I mean, you know, as a child, you know how that is, it's important. Yeah. It's an education, so, yeah. And so it's all part of, you know, these little things that happen in life, these stepping stones, and, and you know, you can't forget the beginning because it's, it's completely connected. Yeah, it is. Um... The reason that I know Adam so well, I guess, is because we did a prom together for the BBC in 2015. And um, we did it at the Royal Albert Hall in London. Um, and it was a, a very major event. We played with Nils Fram, um, a winged victory for the Solon played. And Wayne McGregor brought a group of his beautiful dancers. And what was kind of interesting about that night for me was that the BBC perceived it as a, as a very serious risk that they were undertaking. I think they thought they'd sell maybe three tickets at a push, you know. And it was characterised as, as the great outlier of all of the proms that year. And actually what happened um, was that it became the fastest selling prom of the year the second those tickets went on sale. And in spite of the fact that there was a tube strike that night and it was almost impossible to move around in London, and the road crew at the Royal Albert Hall destroyed two of Nils Fram's vintage Buchla synthesizers. <laughs> I would still say that that prom, that moment, was the best night, the greatest night of my life on earth. And I have to thank you for that, Adam. Oh, it was, it was, it was, a, it was a lovely night. <laughs> <laughs> what? Had, we had a great time. I mean, you, you go into shows sometimes and you're playing, you know, this epic venue. I mean, Royal Albert Hall is, I remember watching, you know, these, these YouTube videos recently of like Led Zeppelin playing there in like 1970. It's just like this iconic venue, you know, beyond iconic. It's just, right? I mean, how do you describe that place? You think, well, I have to play in this, this venue. It's, it's too much. And you, but it, you know, for some reason, our sound works really good in the venue. Obviously, it was made for classical music, you know, way back in the day. So, it was a, it was definitely one of the best sounding shows we ever had. So, 
I don't know if it's luck, a little bit of both, but I mean, it was it was a lovely evening. Yeah, I do remember all the the stress leading up to it. I mean, they were really giving you a lot of grief about it. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's my job though to shoulder <laughs> that, I guess, isn't it? But um, BBC Life. that I mentioned this um, not only was it the greatest night of my life on earth but something happened at the epicenter of that performance that kind of leads on to the conversation that we're going to have about Adam's new record and what I wanted to try to do at the prom because we only had 45 minutes and obviously as you know that's kind of like a track and a half maybe for one of the artists concerned um, they had to truncate their sets into, into a, a much smaller pace, space so that we could deliver this prom on television and what I thought might work really well is that we didn't have any interruption and we made it quite an immersive experience was that we created an element in the centre where Winged were completing their set, um, Wayne's dancers were on the stage, and Nils Fram came in and began to play along with Winged before his set began. So we had this beautiful swirling centerpiece with all of the artists performing together. What was really interesting about that was Nils just wanted to improvise, Nils Fram. He was really happy to just go, go with the moment. But Winged were very, very conscious of the fact that this was being broadcast live on BBC television and across three different radio networks and five digital platforms. So you didn't really want to take any risks at that point, did you? Uh, no, no. Well, maybe it's just, <laughs> just, you know, habits, hang-ups need company. So we, we, wrote, we wrote music out and then, you know, so we had a little, you know, we had a disagreement, but, you know, it worked out. Yeah. Dustin told me a brilliant, brilliant thing in the aftermath. He told me that he wrote a matrix of different parts so that all of the players on stage, of whom there were many, there were also a brass section with a winged victory of the Solon, could choose any part in that moment 
and play it and all of it would work simultaneously together. So that also gave Nils the freedom that he wanted for the improvisational element. But I, I wanted to mention this just because you told me that you've been jamming recently for the first time. Mm, not for the first time, but on occasion we do a little bit. <laughs> yeah, which is kind of quite out of character for you, isn't well, it? Well, no, it's, it's, it's everyone does it, but you know, just do it more secretly. Don't want to admit <laughs> to it. I, I don't know. I'm, it's it's fine. We're writing we're writing music and we're playing with keyboards and everyone does it. What is the balance? You know, what is writing music? What is jamming? I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, who cares? It's it's you're just making a record. Record, but you know you need to create a sort of yeah you have to you have to sort of tell a narrative and explain what you're doing and it's just all part it's, you know making a record it seems like before when you used to make records you could make a record and just release it and you didn't really have to talk about it so much but at this point in history it seems like you have to endlessly come up with a sort of I'm not trying to, to be negative. I'm just being realistic. <laughs> I know people are going to paint me as a, a pessimist, but I'm, I'm I'm a realist. It's different. <laughs> it's just a thing that you know. It's it's happening in modern music. So there's a lot of that that goes on emotionally and physically. It's like one year of your life. Think about it. Think about all the things that happened in the past year. You know, to to make and complete a record in a year, it's 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 really difficult to make a good a record that you know you feel that you can let go into the world and it's going to exist there forever. You know, it, it it you know it's it causes sleepless nights. So there's a lot that goes into it, and so there was some jamming going on with some with some vintage keyboards, and I think we we came came up with a couple things. I, you know, it's not really fair to me to say whether it was good or not. You know, this is not the the duty of the artist. That's the duty of the listener. So in the end, I hope it. Uh, I think it worked out. Even. Yeah. about your relationship with Dustin so Dustin and I met so some years ago uh, I used to play with a band called Sparkle Horse some of you may know and we were on tour in 2007 in Italy and uh, I had already been friends with this uh, our engineer that we this recorded all of our records his name is Francesco Donadello he's from Bologna well not from Bologna he's actually from from Padua which is it's you know some it's in Italy, in northern Italy. And he was living in Bologna and had a studio at the time. And I invited him to the show. And I gave him a plus one. And he brought Dustin to the show. And I, backstage after the show, we, you know, I caught Dustin. He was drinking my whiskey. <laughs> and then, yeah, and here I am. <laughs> we got to be friends. You know, it's a, it was the only, it was the first American friend I made in, 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 in Europe. I had been living here since 99. And yeah, we became friends, and yeah, it's, it's kind of funny. You know, you think about these moments in life where if Francesco had not brought Dustin to the, you know, we never would have, you know, I wouldn't have, well, maybe we would have met through Stars of the Lid or something because you, you, you like that, but you think about how different, you know, these moments in life, if, if Frank didn't bring Dustin to that show, we never, you know, we wouldn't be, you know, we would never have made this music. It's super, sometimes I think about that, that freaks me out a little bit. Mm. It's such a... Phew, 
It's really interesting to see the way that the two of you move, though, because you're so busy all the time, aren't you, with a thousand different um, soundtrack projects and various different other artists that you work with and um, your own musical projects that are separate to A Wing Victory. And yet there's something, I don't know, for me, that must feel really powerful that draws you back together and you think, okay, it's time. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I don't know. I mean, everyone's busy, but... Yeah, we definitely have emotional connection when, when it comes to making music, and that's you know that's what you want. You just it's just really that simple, you know. Besides the friendship, which which is you know deep, and you know I love them to death, and but we just really have a good time making music together, and it's it's a real pleasure. And we're lucky to have each other, that's for sure. Because you know the collaboration sometimes you could never do this by yourself. You need those you need those two parts, you know. It's a yeah. Yeah, again, I say I just I feel very lucky to have him in my life. a beautiful video that you'd made online um, just yesterday actually showing some of the locations that you've traveled to to make this record um, tell me about that decision why did you decide to kind of take it I suppose the record out as a journey uh, well it's it's also coming back to the first record because the first record you know we didn't exist we were just two friends making making some art together and in the first record we decided we wanted to get out of our home studios and do a little bit of traveling go to some exotic locations we went to to Italy and uh, well I live in Brussels you know I don't know how exotic that sounds but <laughs> it's a great place to come and we did Berlin and we did Iceland and Budapest where we recorded all the strings so it's a you know everyone knows the importance of traveling the importance of you know it just who doesn't love travel it makes everyone feel good and it's like this translates exactly into the music it, it, traveling it just inspiring you go to a new place and you just it opens your mind up so it's 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 completely natural so we, we continue that tradition that's just something we love doing together yeah do you find that there's a quality of the actual space, I suppose, that you've recorded in that is somehow imbued within the sound? Yeah, I mean, a little bit, I'm sure. I mean, it's also connected with what I was just saying of just being in this you know, beautiful space. And mm. I mean, you know, some of the spaces, one of the spaces, for example, the church next to my, my apartment in Brussels, I mean, that's, you know, something I see all the time, but it also has this very specific sound and space. And it's a very inspiring place to, to, to you know, we've played concerts there and so. But, uh, yes.
tell us about the title, The Undivided Five. Uh, so what does that mean? Yeah, f- f- I don't know. Um, so it's a little bit connected to sort of the harmonic fifth, this uh, chord that we always seem to sort of fall back into this, you know, we all have habits and these sort of r- these things that we artistically create, we fall into sort of patterns, not necessarily negative patterns, it's just like these things that just come naturally out of us. And we notice that we were always going to this chord, this harmonic fifth chord. And then we were looking, I went to this, this gallery opening in New York was Hilmar Klint. She's a she was a Swedish. Uh, you know, she's basically like was Kandinsky before Kandinsky. And I I, did, I don't for some reason I just never saw any of her artwork, and it was just it just blew me away. It's just uh, incredible stuff, and it really just yeah reminded. We wanted to initially use the the artwork for the record cover, but it's you know it's complicated to use dead people's artwork sometimes. So it really inspired this sort of. Well, anyway. Part of the story is she had this group of, of she was like a mystic from, from, from Sweden, and then she had a group called the Five, and they were basically these five ladies that got together and would have these sort of seances and then paint, and, and it would sort of create these, these beautiful paintings that she made. And then it, it made me think about, us think about, you know, why are we going back to this chord? I mean, is there something... Okay, I'm not trying to get too spooky about here, but you know, why? What is pushing? You know, intuition, things you're doing. You know, is it is it these forces in life that are accidental? I, I don't know. It's, it's these unexplained thoughts of these emotions that come out of you and help you to create. And it's very much connected to these this uh, these beautiful art, these beautiful paintings by this woman. I don't know how everybody else feels in the in the space tonight, but when I listen to the music of A Winged Victory for the Sullen, I find that there's a kind of magical space in the sound, almost a space that lies between the notes that you can you can just slide into, you can inhabit that space. And I suppose it brings me a sense of peace, almost like unlike any other kind of piece that I would experience in in the madness of 2019. And I wonder if that's something that's kind of conscious that you and Dustin 
are thinking about when you're making music, you're thinking about space. I mean, I think the space is something of, you know, it comes back from the beginning for me. It's just, it's always been in, in, inherent in my music, the slowing down, the feeling of everything being in slow motion. This goes way back. And this also goes back to our beginning when we, the first time we, we worked together, the, you know, when I started pushing the, the tempo to, to, to just, you know, turn the knob back. And so we were just, you know, creating these new spaces and yeah, it's just it's just something I'm drawn to. I just I think, you know, the world is always pushing. You know, looking at most of the music they sell here, it's music to get up to. It's music to everyone wants to get up. Everyone's ready to. I mean, look, London, it's it's insane. You know, for me, I'm the opposite. I've always just <laughs> I, I just want to slow down. Hmm. I don't know that I feel like all of us need it, don't we? Um... In, in the in the kind of the the cultural environment, I suppose the social political environment that we find ourselves in, 2019, we need to find that place where we can just let go, and it, it's so incredibly difficult to do that. And yet, I feel always your your music takes me there. You know. Thank, well, thank you. I mean, London definitely, you know, not the easiest place to slow down, but you know, there's a little, there's some nice, there's still some nice parks here. Shoreditch, <laughs> maybe not so much. <laughs> Yeah. Why did you cut all your hair off? Um, well, you know, we all need changes, right? I, I have to say, your hair looks great. <laughs> oh, I love your hair. Actually, we were talking... Sorry, we, we're friends in real life, too, so... I, I was encouraging her to shave her head like me so we could be like twins and walk around town. But, so you, you're close. You're getting closer. Well, it's November. And it's <laughs> like five degrees outside, but I would, I would consider it in the springtime, yeah. Yes. Yeah, but when Adam Adam walked in to see me at Manchester International Festival, we were both working there in the summer, and um, we should talk about that piece, actually. But he walked in with a bald head, and I thought, yeah, that's always usually symbolic of something that's that's fresh, that's changing, that's new, isn't it? But you haven't grown it back. Uh, it feels good. Hmm. It looks good. Thank you. Should, should we talk about... Um, the theatre piece that you did at Manchester International uh, Festival. Well, it was it was yeah, it was my first time at the Manchester. It was yeah. it was it was it was a beautiful. I mean, actually, the organisation was really it was great, mm. and the Mayfield Depot and everything was fantastic. So, yeah, this we did a score to this uh, the fifty nine productions people who did the Olympics. Uh, yeah, they did this theatre piece about uh, Cal Calvino's Invisible Cities, and pff, man. Yeah, it was, well, it was a thing. So it's going to come out next year. It was fun. Mm. It was very complex. There were sort of theatrical elements. There were musical elements. Sure. The staging was really profound, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, the staging was good. Uh, I mean, all of the lighting. It was, it was a proper theater piece. I don't know how you managed to put that together in such a short, short space of time, actually. Uh, I mean, the I mean, a lot of it's to do with Leo uh, Warner, the, the the director of 59 Productions. I mean, you know, when you, when you collaborate, if... The concept of collaboration, if you have good collaborators, they let people, they bring people that they, they like their art and you let them resonate. Let them, don't, you know, don't micromanage them. Just let them bring things that you drew, you drew you to them in the first place. Don't micromanage them. It, it never works. This is always the problem with when doing film scores. And Leo is so good at that. You know, he just had brought people that were talented, that he liked their art and you know, it worked. You know, it's it's really not that complicated. <laughs>
Do, does anybody some, have a question yeah, that they would questions? like to ask? When you choose, like, when you take these records out on the road to record, kind of how is it you choose these locations? Is it like kind of, is there any criteria you look for to kind of get to the... Absolutely. I mean, they're very specific. Either you know connected with an instrument like Italy, they have this piano, it's a fazioli. It's a very specific Italian piano that we love. This particular one piano in this this weird studio, it just sounds so good, and it's the the piano you hear on the, on the new record. Budapest, they have this orchestra. They did the a lot of the orchestra. They did well, actually probably most famous you would know for popular culture is uh, uh, Johann Johansson Sicario was recorded there. They're just this fantastic Hungarian orchestra. They're, just, they're so good, and so we did all the the string recording there. So definitely, there um, there's definitely specific artistic connections with with all the spaces for sure. Cool. Anybody else have a question for Adam? So dark, I can't see. <laughs> <laughs> Screamos. That's it's it. Fine. <laughs> Hi, Marina. I want to ask something. How do you know if something's good or something's extraordinary? You don't. Okay, so I have a feeling, but I don't know about. I can't make that the concept or the 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 emotion you say is extraordinary. I have a feeling in my you know my heart, my gut. I don't know what it is. That that the thing I was just trying to explain. This feeling, you know, this initial feeling of okay, this is something I want to develop. I want to go somewhere with. But I, extraordinary. I, I've never been very good at, at looking at my art as in any sort of reverence because I I, I I don't know. It's so difficult for me. It's not, I've never felt it was my job. I'm just trying to be creative and then, you know, the rest, you can't really control that. But, you know, if you start, for me, if you start thinking of your, your, your art in those terms, how are you ever going to do anything extraordinary in the future? Because if you already think you've done something extraordinary. Does that make any sense? No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think what you're trying to say is that you're just driven by instinct. And instinct is the only thing you've got, really. Yeah, but I'm sorry I didn't answer your question. <laughs> <laughs> it was a really good question. Cool. Listen, thank you so much for being with us today. You've been a brilliant audience. And yeah, Adam Wiltsey, everybody. Thank you.